So today we're continuing with our sermon series on 1 Peter. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, you know this is what we're going through uh, this fall. And we are going to be going through this book until um, almost Thanksgiving. And, and just to give you the, the real uh, situation in which that first Peter was written, the Apostle Peter is writing this book, presumably from Rome, but he's writing this book to Christians who are forcibly relocated and resettled by the Roman government. Uh, these are Christians that have been forced from their homes and resettled in rural uh, Turkey. And so Peter is beginning to make the point that they are marginalized for their faith because Jesus himself was marginalized and rejected. So today we've, we'll see very specifically how Jesus was rejected, uh, very specifically. And so Peter's beginning to, to point out that as Christians, we're going to be marginalized and rejected in our lives today for our faith because Jesus was. But what Peter is also going, what he's doing right now is that he is locating our identity in Jesus Christ. Yet, like earlier we sang, yet not I, but Christ in me. It's that similar type of thing. Peter is pointing out that we have a new identity in Christ. And because of that new identity, we have new roles and new responsibilities because we're in Christ. So let's see how that's the case today. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Again, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You can follow along, and your worship guides are on the walls beside me. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father God, we thank you again for your word. This is the word that you have spoken to us. It's a word you have given to us because you love us. And so by your word, th these words are so that we would have life, that we would love, that we would know you, that we would know your love, and that we would be shaped by you as well. So, Father, be with us now as we look at your word. May we be shaped by it, and may your spirit be at work in our hearts and, and lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. About 600 years ago, the, the church, as in the, the, really the Western church, was in trouble. And uh, 600 years ago, people were beginning to take notice. Uh, but let me just give you a few examples of how the church was in trouble. The church was in trouble, like say on a Sunday, you would come together to come and worship God. And however, 
the, the service was not in a language that you could understand. It was in a, really a dead language almost. It was in Latin. And as the worship would go on, uh, you would come to a time and the priest in front of you would pick up the chalice holding the wine and he would begin to say some words. He would pick up the bread and he would begin to say some words. Again, you would not understand these words. But some of the words, one phrase would be hoc es corpus maium. But you would really hear it and say hocus pocus. Some monks and priests were slurring the words together. Hoc es corpus maium being hocus pocus. And so the church was, was really looking at the liturgy and the, the worship and the hearing the word and even uh, going through the administration of, of the sacraments. And they would say, this is all really superstitious. Hence the words hocus pocus coming from hoc es corpus maium which simply means, this is my body, from uh, John, um, from Jesus' last words with the Lord's Supper. And so, like, the church, again, was in crisis. But as you would want to come to worship, you were actually not able to partake of the Lord's Supper because this, this wine was understood to be incredibly precious and you could not be trusted. So what was going on in the church 600 years ago is that there was this massive divide between the priests and the people of God. There's this divide. And so 600 years ago, Martin Luther came to this passage, and he began to have his entire understanding of the church to be shaken. And this is actually the, the, because this, this text is talking about something called the priesthood of all believers. And so 600 years ago, you had men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others who actually wanted to bring about a, a biblical reformation where the church was returning to its roots, where the church was returning to, uh, to the scripture and, and even willing to jettison uh, traditions that were actually hampering the health of the church. And so very specifically because uh, the 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 masses, the, the general population were not uh, educated. They could not read. John Calvin said, hey, you know what? I want my church, I want my city to know the word of God so thoroughly. John Calvin had an, a, a worship service every single day for it in the morning and in the evening. And he's teaching scripture and reading scripture so that the, his city would actually memorize the God's word. And they, but it's actually in the language they could understand. And so the reality is that we take God's word for granted in a lot of ways, but for the vast majority of history, for the past, like, of the 2,000 years behind us, uh, roughly 1,600 of those years, people did not have the God's word in written form that they could just have in their backpack or in their back pocket or in their smartphones. I start with this because I, I'm, I want you, I'm raising actually just how significant this passage has played in the formation of the church in, in, across the world. Because this passage is raising up this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And I want to really lean into this idea. And it's because of this simple, beautiful idea is that there's a, an equality within the church. Not only is there an equality, but there is a fact that every single person in this room today has a ministry. Has a ministry to one another and also a ministry to the world as well. That is, what, that is how significant this idea of the priesthood of all believers is. And that is how significant and relevant this passage is. And, so what, and Peter is unpacking this for us by rooting this incredible idea 
in Old Testament imagery. So let's just lean into this idea of priesthood of all believers. How is it the case? How, how is Peter building and making his case? Let's start with the first thing. And as we begin to look at this, this is all about your new identity in Christ. Your new identity in Christ. The first thing, let's, the first thing that, is, that Peter goes to is that you are a spiritual house. Let's look at verse uh, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As a spiritual house. This is a mind-blowing truth. It really is. This is a mind-blowing truth. If you are a Christian, this means that you are a house of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within you. You are a temple. You are a spiritual house. In your life, as you go about the everyday, uh, as you go about your everyday life, you are the presence of God in this world. So let's. This is this is mind blowing. This is incredible. Peter's making the point by he's making this point by drawing from scripture. So let me trace the theme of God's presence for us. Let's think about the Old Testament first. In the very beginning of Scripture, we read that we are created for face-to-face intimacy with God. God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. They know his presence. But when they sinned, when they rebelled against God, they were cut off from his presence. They were banished, in fact, later by, from the Garden of Eden. Their original sin, their rebellion against God impacts and affects us as well. But what we see is that God comes down to his people. God comes down to his people. As you hear that, you might be thinking, hey, God comes down to us in Jesus Christ. But think about the Old Testament. God comes down to the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God comes down to them in a variety of different ways. And we call these uh, revelations of God theophanies, these revelations of God. In fact, there was a whole sermon series on these theophanies last summer in 2018. But he, can't, he comes down to these, to, to these patriarchs, as we call them. Like, think about Jacob. He comes down to Jacob in a dream. Or think about later on in, in, in Exodus, with, as God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, he comes to them in various ways. As the Israelites traveled throughout the wilderness as nomads, God said to them, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. And so the Israelites literally make a, essentially a tent, a RV for God to dwell in, the, the tabernacle. And wherever Israel would go, God would go. There would be a pillar of fire at night that everyone would see. There would be a pillar of a cloud at, at daytime that everyone would see. Wherever the, the Israelites went, wherever God's people went, God was with them. And as they uh, made their way into Judea and Israel, they built a temple. And so they, God d- d- had a home, a permanent home with his people. And that was later destroyed when the, God's people were exiled into Babylon. And throughout the prophets, we see again and again and again the promise that God is going to come again to dwell with his people. And we see this also in Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah uses the, the phrase, the name of God, Emmanuel, which is literally a Hebrew construct, meaning God with us. So God is with us. God dwells with us because of Jesus Christ. 
And so this is the story of God. And whenever God would show up to the patriarchs, it was in dreams. Then he showed up to his people in other revelations. And it was connected to the tabernacle and temple. And, but now because of Jesus, God makes himself known to you and the world through the church. That is Peter's incredible point here. The Christian faith is never meant to be a private individual thing. It's not meant to be something that we can live on our own at home listening to podcasts. It's not something that we can live on our own just having a, a quiet time whatsoever. It's not something that we can live on our own just going on uh, service trips or mission trips. It's not something we can live on our own. Peter's metaphor of the church being the house of God is different from other metaphors of the church that are used in other books of the Bible. Think about Paul. Paul would call the church the body of Christ. Paul would call the church the bride of Christ. Peter says the church is the house of God. And he truly leans in with this. In verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. And Tim, Tim Keller points out the significance of this. The, and this is what he says. The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies the significance and purpose of individual Christians cannot be realized apart from the community with other believers. You have access to this incredible glory as you're fitted together with the other living stones. It does not say, it does not say that God inhabits each stone, even though in a certain sense that's true, but that's not the point here. It's saying God inhabits us together. We have access to his presence because we're fitted together. In other words, to, to paraphrase uh, Keller here, if you're going to experience the presence of God, you need the church. You need one another. And so what's that very specifically mean? What's that mean? Well, first, perhaps you're here today and you are really checking out Christianity. You are curious about Jesus as a teacher and, and what this idea of having Jesus as your Lord and Savior means. So you're curious ab about it. And you're thinking through faith. But what I want to draw, highlight for you is that Peter's point is that you cannot follow Jesus or know God on your own terms. That's incredibly significant for all of us, in fact. For even those of us who are church and religious. That if you want to learn about the Christian faith and experience God, if you want to grow in your Christian walk and discipleship, then you have to lean into community. You have to come to worship. You have to give yourself to community and be known and to be loved by God's people. Think about this from a different angle. Think about this from a different angle. If you want to become more fit, if you want to get stronger, but you only go to the gym once every six months, do you think you're going to be stronger? Do you think you're going to become more fit? Even if you regularly go to the gym, you're going to get frustrated if no one is celebrating your gains. And successes with you. It's hard. You are lonely, in fact. When you do not have people in your corner cheering you on and, and encouraging you. And the same actually applies to your own spiritual health and your spiritual growth. You have to give yourself to community. Jesus gives you something that you need in order to grow in your life with God. And that's the church. The church is here to help you grow in your walk with Jesus. The church is here to help you be encouraged as you seek to follow Jesus. We need the church to grow together. That's one of the first things that Peter's pointing out. That's the first 
idea of our identity in Christ that he's pointing out for us. We are a spiritual house, a place for God to dwell in. But let's move on to the second thing. And it's still the same verse. We're, we are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. Again, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on, in fact, jumping down to verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so Peter is actually the only apostle, the only writer in the New Testament that refers to the Christian community. He refers to the church as a holy priesthood. That's, that's a major unique theme of First and Second Peter. And as we think about this, as he is really leaning on this, is that what the entire, entire argument that Peter's making is that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the one that you depend on, that you put your life on as like he's your cornerstone, then you are a priest. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Again, going to the Old Testament, because the, what I'm saying is that Peter is drawing from the Old Testament to make his case. And priests, biblically speaking, are representatives of people to God. In the Old Testament, you had prophets, you had priests, you had kings. Prophets would bring God's word to his people. That's what Moses would do. That was Isaiah. That's what Ezekiel. That's what all the prophets did. You had the priests that would actually bring sinners to God. But you would also have kings who would rule over them. But, and so, so when people would sin, according to the book of Leviticus, they would have to make a sacrifice to God. But they would not be the ones doing, doing it. Sinners would not be coming to God themselves. They were guilty sinners. So the priesthood existed. The priests would do that for them. And these priests truly represented sinners to God. Commentator Karen Jobes explained the Old Testament priesthood by saying this. This is how she defined this. That an ancient priesthood was to be sanctified and set apart from the people at large for their ministry to God to whom they have special access. So here are, in the Old Testament, the priests, and it was a whole tribe. It was the tribe of, of Levi, and it was uh, the, the Aaron and the, his descendants together who were the priests. And their entire life was set apart. They, there were special rules and regulations that actually governed their life that did not govern the Benjamites and the, the Judeans and the other uh, uh, tribes of Israel. They were actually set apart. But this is really significant for us. Because now today, after Jesus, every, we need to acknowledge that everything changed with Jesus. Here's a beautiful passage. It's Matthew 27, verse 51. And when uh, Jesus died, when he, he shared out his last words, uh, uh, behold, it is finished. As he said those words, what we find in Matthew 27, 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn. And it's not torn from the bottom up. It's actually torn from the top to the bo bottom. Everything changed with Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, this, this curtain in the temple was separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And only once a year could the, the great high priest go into this, this 
this room to pray for God's people. But when Jesus died, it's ripped in two. And the image that we have right there is the access that was reserved for the great high priest has been given to all of God's people because Jesus died. Everything changed with Jesus. When he died, everything changed. You do not need a, a priest like a pastor, very specifically, to have access to God. We no longer need temples or sacrifices to have access to God. There's no such thing as sacred or holy ground. Jesus is your great high priest. And because of that wonderful, beautiful truth, you have access to God anytime and any place. You can go directly to God in prayer, in worship. You can go to God when you are driving on the road and you're having road rage and you're like saying, God, just... Help me not be angry right now. You don't need a priest to go to God and confess your sin like that. You don't need a priest anymore because you have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. In fact, that's the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. That you have access to God. You have life with God because of what Jesus has done for you. And so Peter does not just stop right there. Because he has the whole Christian community in view. In view. Christians are priests. Christians are spiritual homes, dwelling places of God. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a priest. I love how the Liberty Network puts it, um, the Liberty Family of Churches in this region, that we live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ. That is what Peter is going for. That we live and speak and serve as the very presence of Christ in Westchester, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. We are the presence of Christ. And this is what you are chosen for. In verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood. And a few weeks ago I pointed out that Peter brings up this idea of election. And this is a a subject that we can really spend a lot of time in. And I don't want to don't want to. Instead, I'm going to give you a quote from uh, missionary Leslie Newbegin. And this is the the quote um, in our worship guide. And Leslie Newbegin, just to help you understand him, he's a British missionary who was sent to India um, right around World World War II. And as he's in India, he's serving the, the Indian people overseas, and he comes home in the late 60s. As he comes home, as he returns to England, he is shocked at how much the cultural landscape of of his home nation has changed. He even said that Britain, England, was a Christian nation once upon a time, but now it's a post-Christian nation. He's noticing how Christianity has been pushed to the periphery, and he's making this observation in the 60s. But this is what he says about the doctrine of election. Whenever the missionary character of the doctrine of election is forgotten, whenever it is forgotten that we are chosen in order to be sent, wherever the minds of believers are concerned more to probe backwards from their election into the reasons for it in the secret counsel of God than to press forward from their election to the purpose of it, which is that they should be Christ's ambassadors and witnesses to the ends of the earth. Wherever men think that the purpose of election is their own salvation, rather than the salvation of the world, then God's people have betrayed their trust. 
His entire purpose is that we are saved, we are chosen to bring salvation to the world. And to apply this to the priesthood of all believers, we are saved, we are chosen to bring the very presence of Christ into our lives, homes, neighborhoods, into the world. That's Newbegin's point. And so we considered, we cons- and so the, the, the fundamental point is that priests are set apart they are a holy people. But he, Peter also uses a word that they are, are a royal priesthood. That there's, a, there's a picture there. It's very brief, but we are also kings. We are priests, but we're also kings. But the, what Peter's, where Peter's going with it, this is that we are saved. We are chosen. We are rescued. We are priests because we're also being set apart for ministry. Look at the second half of verse 9. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's the verse I want to look at. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's point is that you have a ministry here. That you have been saved, you have been rescued, that you may proclaim the excell- excellencies of him who called you. Out of darkness into a marvelous light. His point is that every Christian has a ministry. It's not private. It's not an individual thing that you do on your own. But it is part and parcel. It is an essential part of what the church does. In fact, later in in 1 Peter 4, Peter tells us that every Christian has a spiritual gift given from God so that we can help one another grow in their faith. So let me give a a couple examples of what this looks like. Let me give you a couple examples of what this ministry of all believers, priesthood of all believers looks like. First, you come to church and you meet someone who's at a different life stage than you. I, in my mind, it's they, they're at a younger life stage than you, and we have a lot of these people in our church. You discover in talking to him or her that they have a lot of questions. These questions could be about job, it, it could be about career, it could be about credit cards or student debt, or it could even be about faith. And so you say to them, hey, let's exchange our contact inf- information. Let's get together and look at what God's word says to these things. Perhaps let's look, listen to a sermon. Let's look at scripture. Let's pray about these things. And so the point is that here's Ironworks, and we are a young church. The average age of our church is 28. We are fortunate to have a number of older, mature, experienced Christians who are full of life knowledge, and they want to share that with others. That's a blessing that we have as a church. That's one example. Another example is when, is when you do one of the hardest things in, in the world right now. It's truly countercultural. It's, and this is when you decide that you're not going to go to a church or pick a church because it, uh, of your own style pre- or preferences or sensibilities. Instead, you want to go to a church that you can lean, lean into, that you can belong to a church community so that you can create a place for seekers, skeptics, and non-Christians to explore the Christian faith. Or here's another one. You, as you uh, are, are part of Ironworks, as you're looking around, you see a tangible physical need that needs tackling here or there. It could be here on the church property, and there's a lot of these. So you say to me, hey, I want to do a little work project. After work or some weekend, perhaps I can even organize uh, some other folks in the church to do these things. Or perhaps it's actually something compl- similar but different. It has nothing to do with the church property. You actually say, hey, so-and-so has a need in their life. How can we come alongside them? So you go on and do that, and you invite others into this work. 
Or perhaps it, it could be that when you tell your friends that you love them, but you're recognizing that we ha are having a lot of visitors in our church life this, this, this season. And so you tell your friends as like, hey, I want to spend Sunday worship greeting our visitors and creating this a welcoming church because you have created it for me when I came a year ago. And so that's what you say. You tell your friends and you want to make this a welcome. You intentionally want to greet visitors and newcomers in worship. And perhaps you want to share a gospel with others and you want to invite non-Christians to come to know Jesus. So you, so you want to organize a Bible study for seekers and skeptics alike. Wonderfully, every single thing I just described has been lived out by this church since we've planted it. It still happens today. It's a beautiful thing. As I look out at this church, it's a beautiful thing because I'm looking at beautiful people and I'm looking out your lives and I know God is doing a beautiful work as he is making you into a spiritual house here in Westchester where God can dwell, where you can actually be and where you not, where it's not where you can be, it's that you are the very presence of Christ in Westchester. It's a beautiful thing. It's who you are today. That's a wonderful thing to look at. The other fantastic truth is that as a new and young church, not even two years old, we have room for all these things to happen. No one has a corner on any single one of these things I just pointed out. And this is because every follower of Jesus Christ has a ministry, and the church needs your ministry as well. So the question that Peter has for you is that will you lean in and discover yours as well? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.